Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it be let it separate the waters from waters and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind of the earth. And it was so. The, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let, let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars and God set them in the expanse of, of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate light from darkness and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given you, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. Your word that is strong, your word that is our rock, your word that is our refuge. Your word which is our foundation, a light to our feet. I pray that your word would illumine our hearts and our minds, strengthen us, encourage us, and send us out for the work that you have put before us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. For those of you who are new with us, you know, uh, this morning we're clearly starting the book of Genesis together, reading Genesis 1. And, you know, over the summer we were working through a a New Testament book, uh, 1 John. And uh, over the fall into the winter, we're going to be walking through the first 11 chapters of Genesis before we switch in the, the new year to, to the Gospel of Mark. And, and the reason why we do this and we switch the books that we, we go through throughout the year is so that throughout a calendar year, we'll be in all the various parts of Scripture. And so that we can actually be counseled by the whole counsel of God together as a community and not become lopsided in, in one genre over, over, the, over the other. And, uh, and so... For this fall, we are going through the book of Genesis. Um, you know, a handful of, of years ago, I got really into the, the Ancestry.com thing. I really wanted to know about, you know, where, where my heritage uh, was from. And um, I didn't want to pay for the DNA, DNA test thing. And so, you know, if you just start filling out the names that you know that are part of your family, it'll kind of try to match other people that other people put into this website. And uh, I thought I'd see what I could find out. Do I have any cool relatives um, that I could, you know, claim uh, uh, with my friends and, and sound really cool? You know, because when I was young, um, I remember my, I don't know if I remember this right, but this is how I remember it, is my, my brother and my sister who are older than me, they were looking around in some old family documents and they said, hey, we think we may be related to the, to the real original Robin Hood, the real Robin Hood of history. I don't know if he exists, but, but they said, hey, we think we might be related to him. And I was like, so I wanted to, you know, confirm that, that fantasy and I'd already had a, bought a longbow, so now I needed a reason to have it, you know, do I have that into my DNA to be really good with this? And so I start plugging away and find out the few facts that I knew about my family. It turns out I don't know that much about my family. And uh, what did I find? I found nothing, right? There's no, no Robin Hoods, no great archers in my history. Um, but, you know, there's, I don't know if you've done this either, you probably at least wonder, but there's just something inside of us that is drawn to finding out about our heritage. We want to know where are we from? What's our legacy? The question is why, why do we care so much about our bloodline a thousand years ago? What does it have to do with me today? I think the, the answer to that question that resides in all of us is actually pretty simple. Right? We care about where we come from because it, it gives us meaning in life. Knowing where we come from gives us meaning because it helps us answer the question of identity. Who are we? What legacy am I standing in? Uh, Isn't this the foundational problem of our day is that no one knows who we are? Uh, We're so confused in our day and age. I was talking to a youth pastor once. He was talking about the problems that they have. And he said the kids that he's working with 
were genuinely just confused about the very, the truest things about them. They had no idea. Am I, am I man? Am I woman? Am I gay or am I straight? Is the legacy of my family good or bad? No one knows who they are. And, you know, this can be true of the church, too. We struggle to, to understand our identity. We struggle to believe that we actually are God's children. And because we struggle with our identity, to, because we don't know who we are, we're not going to know what to do. And if you don't know what to do, it paralyzes you in your life and you become afraid to act, afraid to make mistakes because what if we go the wrong way? What if we choose the wrong job? What if our jobs aren't fulfilling enough for us? And you know, one of the beautiful things about going to Genesis and one of the beautiful things that the book of Genesis does for us is it reminds us, it shows you who are you. It answers that great question. And in showing you who you are, it shows us how we're to live in this world. Genesis gives you a foundation that you're to build your life on. And this is what we're gonna find as we explore these ancient foundational truths. Just a couple you know, quick facts about the book of Genesis that are important that will come up uh, as we go through these first 11 chapters together. But that Genesis was written by the hand of Moses along with the rest of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And it was given to the, the people of God, the Israelites, right before they entered the promised land. Now, if you remember the Israelites, uh, they, you know, they were in Egypt and they got enslaved by the Egyptians and then they were on their way back and then they sinned against God. So they spent 40 years in the desert wandering around and now they're finally on the precipice, finally able to enter the promised land right before Joshua 1. And, uh, and, but Moses couldn't enter it. He writes this stuff down. He gives it to these people as their foundational truth. This is who you are. This is your God. Do not be like the, the people who, who worship f- the false gods. Do not be like the, the, the people of Canaan. Be like the people uh, who, uh, who, who belong to Yahweh. So he's reminding them, this is where you come from. This is who you are. This is what you're here for. This is your foundation. This is what separates you from everybody else. And gave them their identity as they, as they walked into the promised land. And so as we, you know, walk through Genesis this fall, we're going to begin this morning. We're just going to ask two fairly simple questions that I think will hold a lot of great truths for us. And they're this, uh, who made us is the first question, right? How do we get here? And the second question is, who are we? So first, who made us? Well, let's look back at verse one. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it's a really simple question, you know, first glance. God made us. You know, it's a great little kid song. Who made you? God made you. Um, it's, it's a great, it's really catchy. Um, so God made us. But we immediately have questions to that, right? Well, who is this kind of God, right? Is he good God? Is he bad? Was he just bored? Uh, did he, you know, there, there was this creation myth in, in Babylon about this God Marduk who, who, who created humans, they said, because he needed slaves to serve him. Is that the kind of God that created us? What kind of God created us? Well, the answer to this question about who this God is, is this, that he is a Trinitarian God. A Trinitarian God made us. Well, the Trinity is one of the harder doctrines of the Christian faith um, that says this, that, that God in himself is three in one, right? Three distinct persons, yet one in substance, power, and being. And actually, this is what we see happening here in the beginning. Let me back at verse 2. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there 
was light. And then he goes on creating the world. And so you kind of get this idea of God and the spirit. And then he creates. And then he gets to humans and he says this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And, uh, you know, it's, obviously it's a bit of a leap to go from these verses to say Trinitarian theology. It doesn't spell it out, but it is the beginning of this truth that there is some sort of internal plurality to God. Uh, the one piece that seems to be missing in just reading this uh, on, on its own is, is the son. And this is where the rest of the scripture helps us come in and fill in these details. The gospel of John being one place, um, at the beginning says this. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So the gospel of John actually begins very much like Genesis and the thing he is actually setting up in his gospel is this idea of new creation and being born again. But what does he tell us about this first creation event? That the word was there, creating, all things being made through him. Well, who is the word? Well, John tells us the word is Jesus, the son. Right? Jesus, the word, was with the father bringing all the created order into being. You know, as Colossians, you know, also affirms this truth and Colossians 1.16 says this about Jesus, that by him all things were created on heaven and earth. And here in, we find in Genesis 1, in the beginning was God, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit working together. You see this in, you know, Genesis 1, in the beginning was God, this is the Father. He is there, and you see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And it's almost like this, the Spirit is, is the, the breath of God Almost like this song that's just begging to be sung. And God's word in, in verse 3, right? And God said, he speaks. His word is what brings creation into being, right? The son sings the song of the spirit, bringing all that is to life. Or something out of nothing. Order out of chaos. The trinity is at work in creation. So why does this matter so much that God is a triune God? What, what, is this, what does this mean for us and, and the who of who God is? Well, it means that God did not create us because he was bored or because he needed slaves or even because he needed someone to love. But because God is a triune God, he was perfect in love. He was perfect in power without any need before, long before creation. He had everything he needed within himself. He had no compulsion to create except that it's actually innate to his character of being triune. You know, in the, also in the Gospel of John, in this prayer, it's called the High Priestly Prayer in John 17, it, John writes that before the foundations of the world, the Father loved the Son. Why in that love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit overflowed, and that's the thing that brought life into this world. He couldn't help but share that love. So to be created by a Trinitarian God means that we were created as an overflow of that love that exists in the Trinitarian Godhood. Love will always overflow and serve and build and create. This is why, you know, we're just going through the book of First John talking a lot about love. And the definition of love is service. Love is always outward seeking, outward focused, outward serving. This is what love does. And it does that because this was foundational from creation. It can't help but do this. And this is what, what we find that the love between the Father and the Son overflows and brings all that is into being. 
And one of these beautiful truths about this is you weren't created by some impersonal God or disinterested God or some power-hungry God, but the God who is love, the God who is near. And what does love do? But it, it goes out, it serves. And out of this love, we find an overflow, which is the creation of all things. And as his love is poured out, we actually see this character in the creation account all over. The power of his word, the order out of chaos, we see happening here in this creation story. And in this creation story, you see that God is not just all powerful, but God is all loving. Who is near his creation, you know, it's broken down like this. In the, in the first two verses, you kind of find this preface explaining, since God created all things. Then in the beginning, in, in verse three, he, they begin to tell us how God created it's by the power of God's voice, his word, that he brings all things into being. That which he says here was without form and void is about to be formed and filled. And in fact, this is how you can even order the, the days of, of creation. Like the first three days of creation, are the, the, the earth is being formed. That was without form is being formed in this, the, this, the last three days of creation. Or it being filled. That which was void, empty, is now being poured into and filled. Uh, this is how God creates order out of chaos. The structure, the repetition, the poetic nature reveal God's order. The forming and filling in all things. And in the first three days in the forming, what do you find? You find the ordering of binary things. Right? You get light. You get darkness. You get water separated from waters. You get land from water. The power of God's voice creating order out of chaos, ordering creation so that it can be filled God's word always brings order because love brings order. Right, just as the triune God is perfectly ordered, so intends his creation to be ordered. And once it's actually formed, then it's in a place where it can be filled. Right? It's like pouring the foundations for a swimming pool. Once, once the foundation of a swimming pool is formed, then it can be filled with water. And we find you know, that the heavens filled first with the sun and moon and stars and then the waters are filled with all the sea creatures and then the land is filled with, with animals and, and they're called to be fruitful and multiply and it's as this extension of, of the work that God started in them that they're supposed to likewise procreate to continue the work and there's this beautiful truth about the creation here that God didn't create a world that is purely utilitarian right? not everything in the world is just practical Right, there's, I love to think that there's creatures in the deep ocean and caverns that we're never going to be able to see, that we'll never know exist. That it's like they're there just for the delight of the Lord because it's an act of love and he delights in his creation. That's why he declares it, this is good, this is good. It's a word of delight and a word of enjoyment. Right? Creation is not done just out of compulsion, as if he had to do it. But I'm overflow of love and joy. This is why even in a world that's a post-Genesis 3 world, I'm not supposed, to talk, not supposed to talk about Genesis 3 yet, but even in our post-Genesis 3 world, a sunset will still take your breath away. Good music will still move you to tears. God could have ordered things to be boring if he chose to, but he didn't because he loves and loves produces order and order produces beauty. And we're called and invited in to, to, to enjoy the world that he has created. And so we have the, the Trinitarian God creating as an overflow of his eternal love within himself, creating all that is, is, all that is by the power of his voice and who still sustains all that is, bringing order from chaos. Think about the, the people that would have been reading this for the first time. 
um, about to, you know, just coming out of their chaotic world, living in the desert, doesn't seem great. Um, and they're coming in to the promised land. Think about the comfort that this would have given them, knowing that their God is the God who created all things, who sustains all things, who is not far off, but he is near, and he longs to dwell with his people. This is the thing that gave them confidence and comfort as they moved into the work, and this is the very thing that gives us confidence in our own lives, because creation isn't by chance. This isn't random, what's happened on earth. It's an act of love. And because it isn't random, you and I are not random either. And so, which leads to the question, who am I? Because the answer to that finds its roots in the one who created all things. So we, we ask the next question, well then who are we? Or what does it mean for us that humans have been created by this Trinitarian God? Well, look with me back here at verse 26. It says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You know, the first thing we see here in, in verse 26 is then God said, let us make man. So the first thing you have to recognize is that we are created as well. And we're not an accident, not a result of survival of the, of the fittest, but the result of the father's handiwork. On purpose, he formed you, he created you because he loves you. That is the first thing we have to recognize about this is you and I are created beings. Which leads us to the second thing is that we're unique from the rest of creation because he stamped his image on us, right? Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we're called image bearers and then immediately we're called to have dominion. So what does it mean for us to be image bearers then? Well, I, there's a lot of implications to this, but I think the first is, and the primary is this, that, that you and I are royal. In, you know, in the ancient world, uh, kings were thought to, 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 be the very, in the, be, to be the very image of God. This is also true in, in Egypt, which is where the Israelites have recently fled, right? Pharaoh was considered divine. And, and Moses is writing for us that this is actually true for all humanity. Not that you are divine, but you are royal. You have his, the image of the royal one is on you. We're all made in the image of God, which speaks to this royal status that you have. And so first to be an image bearer means to have a royal status. And this is the deepest truth about all humans. This is true of those who sleep on the street outside our building, to those who sleep on a scenic drive, to the unborn in the womb. All humans are image bearers, which means all humans have royal status. This is why we care what happens to all humans regardless of anything else. Because they're royal. Because they're princes and princesses. And, you know, what is royal status for? What do, what do royals do? Well, they rule, don't they? Uh, which leads to kind of the second aspect of image bearing is, is ruling, right? The creation mandate to take dominion. You know, theologians call this being called being vice regents of creation or co-rulers of creation. You know, we're not ruling like, like God rules because we're created, we're under him. So we don't rule on our own terms, but under God's authority, following his instructions here, to have dominion, to care for all his creation. That's what we're called to do. 
under God's authority, following his instructions. And even here in the garden, he would be Lord of all, must be servant to all. And so what does this look like for us to rule? Um, Well, I think actually the last day of creation here in chapter two actually has a lot to say to help us understand actually what it means for us to take dominion. Look at me back here, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So you find this kind of interesting. It's, it's actually kind of weird when you're just reading it at first glance, right? God rests. What, what is that about? Was he tired? Um, that should be concerning to us, considering we just said the triune God is perfect in love and power. If he gets tired from speaking some words, um, you know, it'd be one thing if he planted the garden with a shovel, but, you know, what's going on here, you know? And so there's this thing where in the ancient world, speaking of God resting, God's rests in particular places. They rest in temples, because where you rest is where you dwell. And so when Moses here is writing about God's resting, uh, he is saying God built himself a temple to dwell in, a garden temple. And once it was finished, which we see here that it, it was finished, he was able to finally dwell in it, right, to live in it. This is what the rest is about here. You know, one of my favorite commentators on the, the Pentateuch, Desmond Alexander says that divine rest is associated with temple building. He says that, that there's allusions to temple building actually throughout this entire creation event. Um, you know, in the, in the creation of the tabernacle, what do you find? You find all sorts of garden imagery. You find almond branches of gold being woven into the fabrics, right? You also find that God walked in the Garden of Eden like he did in the tabernacle. Eden and later sanctuaries that were built are entered from the east guarded by cherubim. Right, the river that flows out of Eden that we'll read about next week resembles the river in Ezekiel, which envisions a, a river flowing from a future Jerusalem temple, bringing life to the dead sea. So the temple actually mimics the work here in creation because the Garden of Eden was a garden temple. This is what God was building, a place for him to come and dwell with his people amidst them. And this is why he gives the people a day of rest to dwell with us and his people. This is why gathering together each week is so important because God created this day for us that we might enjoy him in community. And seeing what God is building here and the purpose of this creation is the thing that actually tells us how we're supposed to live in the world. So what does it mean to have royal status and to take dominion? Well, it means to join the work of God to help expand this garden city where God dwells to the ends of the earth. This was the deep work of the people, right? To follow the pattern of God, to form and to fill. Man's work was to expand this garden city so that it would cover the world. And our call was to participate in transforming the earth into a divine dwelling that the whole earth might be a garden city as we are fruitful, multiply. We're to fill the whole world with royal priests until the garden covers the earth. This is what we're here for. This is, this is your vision for your life. I think that the challenge for us as we hear this is that we live in a post-Genesis 3 world, don't we? And it gets messy in a couple weeks when we get there. And uh, so how does this creation mandate to live in this way, to expand the garden city of God, impact us who live on the side where sin exists in the world, where we struggle with our identities, 
where we struggle with being fruitful, multiplying, where the, the ground in our relationships are actually now cursed, where the, the, the things of the world are actively working against this happening. How do we accomplish this work while we're in the wilderness? Well, this is where we find Christ in this text. Because God is a God of love. He didn't stop loving his creation even after the fall. But what does God do? He pursues his people. The entire story of scripture could be summarized as a God who loves and pursues his people no matter what. Jesus never stopped working. He pursued him even to the point where he was born. Born in the dust, just like we were made from the dust. Living as a second Adam from which he would be the fountainhead of a new creation where again the triune God is at work bringing humanity out of a state of sin and into a state of righteousness causing us to be born again by the spirit which Paul describes as makes us new creations. Jesus has come to recreate, to make all things new and he can do this because it was by his power, by the power of his words that all things were created in the first place. He's the only one that can do this work. And in the spirit, this happens where we're birthed again by the spirit, by the power of the son to bring us to the father in love. Right now, there's this beautiful truth that instead of God dwelling in the tabernacle, where does he dwell? He dwells inside of us, right? We are temples as the spirit dwells and lives inside of each one of us who have faith in Christ that we are new gardens. The church gathered is the garden city. This is why we want to plant more churches. This is why you'll never convince me that you have enough churches in a town. Because we need them everywhere so that the the, the garden, the city, the temple of the Lord can be expanded. Where the presence of God can be expanded over the entire earth. Because as we're gathered here, we are the presence of God here on this block in Yakima. And this is what we're called to do to continue the work given to humanity to fill the earth with the garden. And this work is made possible and it's made fruitful in a fallen world, or I should say even in a fallen world, because of the work of Christ. That through his death and resurrection, right, through his crushing of the head of the serpent, he is bringing all creation from a state of death to life. So, and that's kind of this up here talk. What does this mean for you and I tomorrow when your alarm clock goes off? Uh, what does this mean for you when you wake up to go to work? How does your work today join you in this dominion mandate? Well, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to get more into the weeds of this topic as we get into Genesis 2, which gets a little bit more specific in some of these ways that I think we were to take dominion. Um, but I think there's a couple of key things that we can consider, even from chapter 1 uh, this morning. And, and the first is this, that your words still hold creative power as you're an image bearer of God. All right, the power to create garden cities or tear them down. The question is, what kind of world are your words creating? Are God's words in creation were purposeful, creating order from chaos? The question is, are your words producing order or do your words produce chaos? Even if you think about you know, the idea of gossip, what does gossip do? Gossip creates disorder, right? It disrupts relationships. Uh, the opposite, speaking good of people, actually builds order, it builds love. And this is where your words... You, you need to be careful with them, right? The scripture speaks a lot about the power of the tongue to, to, to move ships, to be slow to speak. And anyone who's ever in the heat of a moment said something mean to somebody or something that they wanted to take back knows, knows how, how problematic that can be and how destructive that can be to a relationship. And this is one way we take dominion and spread the garden city is through our words, what we speak. Our words matter. Our words still create and have the power to create. Secondly, 
I would say that your, your daily vocations join you in the work of Genesis 1. Whether you are wrestling with irrigation problems in a courtroom fighting for justice, in the orchards fighting against bugs, ordering numbers on a spreadsheet or at home raising your children, or whether you're retired, all your vocations, everything you do joins you in the great work of Genesis 1. You don't have to be a pastor to be priestly. We believe in this thing called the priesthood of all believers. When we're being priestly, as we bring order out of chaos in our lives, as we mitigate the effects of the curse, as our children are born and baptized, as we gather together week in and week out, as our gifts are shared with each other in community, we are a new creation community where even the, the barren are given children to care for. And we're to model this garden living in our daily lives, filling the earth with God's glory as we love God and, and each other. And we're called to hope and work for that long-awaited day when heaven and earth are one, when the whole world will be filled with his glory. And because we can only do this as we're united to the strength of Christ following him, this means that we can actually rest. You know, rest is impossible if you think your success hangs on your shoulders. But when we recognize that our fruitfulness in life comes from Christ and Christ alone, you can actually rest. You can take a day off and you can lay your work down because you know that it is Christ alone who makes it fruitful. And this is what calms our identity anxieties. Recognizing the triune God who created you out of love so that in, in all you do that you would share in that love. May we be a people who rest and being created and known by a triune God. And may this truth lead us with confidence into the world knowing that all our work matters as we join the second Adam bringing order where there is chaos until God's kingdom is on earth as it is in heaven. Pray with me. God of mercy and grace, we give you thanks for your word that brings order out of the chaos that's in our hearts. I pray that you would do that in us this morning, that you would continue to strengthen our hearts to follow you in all things taking heart, trusting that our days are not wasted when we labor with you. We do not labor in vain. We pray in the name of Christ, amen.